2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word now of the living God. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is the word of the living God, and we say... Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray now that you would teach us, encourage us, convict us, and guide us in your word. We ask your blessing on the preaching of your word now. And we pray specifically for the Spirit's work in our hearts inwardly as we hear the word proclaimed outwardly with our ears. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession of Faith, written in 1677, often referred to as the 1689 Confession states quite clearly and quite aptly that a believer is one who enters, if you will, an irreconcilable war with sin. Think about that. The Christian life is a life where you enter into a war. Now you may think to yourself, I thought that becoming a Christian meant that the war was over, that Christ had come, he had lived a perfect life, he had died for me and my sins, and thus we enter into victory. And that is true. Christ did die for the believer's sins. Christ lived a perfect life. His life has been credited to the believer by faith. And yet... From the moment that a person is converted till the very moment that they are with Christ, either at the moment of death or when Christ returns, there is a war that the believer is engaged in with sin. You can read of this particular battle with sin in various places in the Bible, particularly the New Testament. One such place is here in 2 Corinthians, specifically chapter 7, verse 1, where it says that because we have promises... We must cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We must be a people who are growing in cleanliness, removal of filthiness of sin. 
Tonight, I want us to see two particular ways that we can consider this battle with sin. Two particular ways in which we as Christians ought to undertake this battle. If you were to engage soldiers in a battle, you might give them particular weapons. You might train them and you might teach them this is how you are to fight. Well, tonight, we're going to look at two particular ways in which we as Christ's people ought to fight In our battle with sin. Before we do that, let me make it clear that Christ has conquered sin. Christ has conquered the penalty of sin. He has taken the condemnation, Romans 8, chapter 1. And so we're not speaking of our need to be saved. Nor are we speaking to our need to atone for sin. Nor are we saying that there is righteousness to be done that we might be saved. Because in each case, those things are finished by Christ. Our discussion on how to fight is not about earning salvation. Rather, it is about seeking to grow in holiness because of who we are in Christ. How are we to battle sin? Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, once more engages this question. There was, if you recall, difficulty among the Corinthians in receiving Paul. There were many issues that Paul needed to correct to include horrendous, open, unrepentant sin at the church at Corinth. And here in his second letter, perhaps one of multiple letters that he wrote, two of which are Holy Scripture, Paul speaks to two particular ways that we can battle sin. Let me give those two ways to you, and then we're going to unpack them. First, then, we are to battle sin in our connections, or if you prefer, our relationships. We are to battle sin in our connections. And secondly, we are to battle sin by God's promises. So, battling sin in the area of who we are connected with, and battling sin... By the promises of God. Firstly, let's look at those relationships or connections that we have. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This word yoked refers to oxen or other animals that would often be yoked together with a very strong and sturdy, often wooden yoke. These two animals would be bound together, and when one would walk one way, the other would have to follow. They would often be yoked together for a particular task, like treading grain or some other kind of work. Two animals stronger than one, but yoked together that they might move in the same direction. In the backdrop of this statement of being unequally yoked, Paul likely has in mind passages from the Old Testament, perhaps passages even like Deuteronomy 22.10, which speaks to certain kinds of animals that you could yoke together. There, the discussion is likely of not yoking a clean animal with an unclean animal. Here, what Paul is saying is that if you yoke a believer with an unbeliever, If you tie them together, they will move in the same direction. And 99.9% of the time, they will not move in the direction that leads to righteousness. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
And then Paul asks a series of questions, and he gives five, five specific comparisons or descriptions. Before we look at those descriptions, consider, boys and girls, what a farm looks like. There are areas where you have animals grazing, and they are fenced in. Paul is not saying that we can't be around other people. The Holy Spirit of God writing through the pen of the Apostle Paul is not saying that we're not going to graze together with other people, that we're not going to be in the same location with unbelievers. It's not being around them. It's not grazing next to them. It's not even having some kind of relationship with them that is prohibited. But it is being yoked together in a particular way, in a particular relationship that causes you to move together. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The most classic example would be do not marry an unbeliever. Do you remember the instruction that Paul gives to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? He speaks to the widow who's lost his wife or her husband. And he says there that it is perfectly acceptable for a widow or a widower to remarry, but only in the Lord, giving us the clear understanding that believers are to marry only believers. For to do otherwise would be to be unequally yoked. Other kinds of examples could be given. In what ways are you currently tempted to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? The scriptures are clear. We are going to be out in the world. The very commission of Christ is that we should be out among unbelievers, sharing the gospel, baptizing, teaching. But we must not bind ourselves with unbelievers. And then these five comparisons. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord or agreement has Christ with Belial? Belial, by the way, is another term for Satan. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Series of five rhetorical questions. Let's look at them briefly. They all make the same point. We are to battle sin by considering who we are connected with. We are to battle sin in our connections. But look at these descriptions or these questions. Number one, righteousness with lawlessness. Righteousness with lawlessness. Believers are those who are called to practice righteousness. We're called to live in righteousness, following the ways of God. And notice the comparison word. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? We don't often give Greek words, but this one might help us a little bit. The Greek word there is anomia. Namos or nomos means law. Anomia would be anti-law. For what fellowship has law-keeping with non-law-keeping? Or what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? You know, the believer is called to keep God's holy law. The believer is called to pursue righteousness and not to be a-nomas or anti-law. We're to be a people who take the very law of God summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And now to hold that law as a way of worshiping the God who saved us. 
It's not by mistake that regularly from this pulpit in our morning service, the Ten Commandments are read. It's a reminder for us of our need for Christ. But having found Christ, it's a reminder for us of our need to continually seek to obey Christ by taking up his law. All Ten Commandments are good and right and holy. They are the standard of righteousness. It was the only one who never broke any of the Ten Commandments, who spread his arms wide and died for those who've broken them all. What fellowship, then, has righteousness with lawlessness? Secondly, what communion has light with darkness? Different words being used. Communion, fellowship, accord. Think about this. Elsewhere in the scripture, we are told that we have been brought out of darkness and into light. The scriptures declare to us that God is light. And the Spirit's question here, secondly, when we think about being unequally yoked, is what kind of communion or what kind of fellowship do those who are in the light have with those who are walking in darkness? Thirdly, perhaps even more strongly, what accord or agreement has Christ with Belial, with Satan? If you're in Christ, you are indwelt by his spirit. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. He is the one who has crushed the head of the serpent. What accord or what agreement do we have yoking ourselves to unbelievers? Unbelievers are those whose father, the scripture says, is Satan. Now, again, as you hear these words, you might be thinking, but aren't we supposed to witness? Aren't we supposed to care for the common humanity of unbelievers? And of course, the answer is yes. The statement is not do not be around unbelievers. The statement is, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is why teenagers, single individuals, young and old, we ought to be crystal clear in our dating or courting preferences. What ought to drive us is not some kind of ill-placed missionary dating But is this person in Christ? Is this person a person who, and then look at the record here. Is this person a person that pursues righteousness? Are they walking in the light? Are they named and living after Christ or after Satan? Are they a believer? Do they view themselves as being a part and they themselves as being the temple of the living God or not? Well, Paul continues. Or what part has believer... With an unbeliever. Here it brings it back really to the two distinctions. Believer with an unbeliever. The phrase there, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Again, there's a common humanity. There are common relationships. But when you begin to put yourself in a kind of relationship where you are connected to an individual, yoking yourself to them, you will move in their direction. And as the scripture says most clearly... What do you have in common? What direction can you go if an unbeliever is leading you? Verse 16, 
And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, you are the temple of the living God. So notice the five questions, the five descriptors of believers. Righteousness versus lawlessness. Light versus darkness. Christ versus Satan. Believer versus unbeliever. Temple of God versus idols. These five questions Paul asks under the heading of calling us to consider who we are yoked with. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Listen, brothers and sisters, when we yoke ourselves to unbelievers, when we adopt their ways, when we begin to connect with them in ways that go beyond simple human relationship and evangelistic interest to being yoked together with them, then we are being driven in directions that we ought not go. We should battle sin in our connections. So often, the line is blurred for believers. They begin to think to themselves, there's something of interest that I have for this person. So I will willingly yoke myself to them, but, 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 but it's all under the, the interest of evangelism. I'll get to sharing the gospel with them. Don't use evangelism or missionary zeal as an excuse to live in sin. Battle sin in our connections. Listen, brothers and sisters, our call is not to push away the unbelievers. Our call is not to be hate-filled individuals. Our call is not to gather ourselves together in little communes that have no connection to the world. But the scripture is also clear. While we may graze in the same sheep pen with unbelievers, while we may be around them, while we may seek to care for them, we are not to be unequally yoked together with them. Battle sin in our connections. But secondly, consider this. Battle sin by God's promises. By God's promises. We're talking about battling sin here. We're talking about cleansing ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That really is the foundation in verse 7. In chapter 7 verse 1, isn't it? But notice... What Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. If you're following the grammatical construction properly, what you'll see is that the basis for cleansing ourselves from sin is the promise of God. Namely, three particular promises. Having specific promises from God is the foundation, and I would add the fuel out of which we can battle sin. Look then at verse 16. What are these promises? Well, there's one in verse 16, there's one in verse 17, and there's one in verse 18. Paul then in verse 1 of chapter 7 calls them promises, plural. And because we have these, he says, let's cleanse ourselves. Well, what are these? Look at verse 16. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The first promise that is the ground of battling sin is the very presence of God. 
Communion with God is a ground for our battling of sin. Listen, God has set his spirit in the hearts of his people. God has gathered them together in his church. The Lord Christ has died for them and sent his spirit to dwell in them. And that is one of the promises that we have. One of the things that is true about us every single day of our lives, Christian, is that God dwells among us. And because we have this promise of God, we ought to, as the scripture says, cleanse ourselves. Look, if God is among us, if I have fellowship with God unhindered because of Christ, then I need to be clean before him. Now again, brothers and sisters, Christ has taken away our sin. We're not talking about trying to earn cleanliness. We're talking about the fact that God has put his presence among us. He dwells among us. And so we ought to live lives by his mercy and grace. Putting away filthiness of flesh and spirit. God's presence is one of the promises that we have. And this promise is a foundation out of which we ought to cleanse ourselves from sin. When you are tempted, brother or sister, to sin, take up this promise in your mind. Dwell here. Meditate here. Look, I am a man. I am a woman that has the promise that God will be with me. The living God who rules and reigns over all things. Why would I want to bring the filth up and then you fill in the blank? Because God dwells among me. I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This promise comes from a variety of places in the Old Testament, both law and prophets. But this promise is ultimately realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember that when Christ was born, the name given unto him was Emmanuel, God with us. If you're in Christ, then you have this Promise, this irrevocable promise of God, that he will be your God, that he will dwell with you. You battle sin by this promise. You take up this promise every single day and you ruthlessly compare the puny sin of this world with the glorious presence of the almighty God. But then verse 17 gives us another promise. Remember, chapter 7, verse 1 says that there are promises plural and we see three of them at least in these verses. Not only do we have verse 16, God's presence, but in verse 17, we have God's receiving of us. Look at verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and not touch what is unclean. And I will receive you. I will receive you. This promise occurs in both law and prophets. God is the God who receives sinners. God is the God who takes us in. Notice this verse in verse 17. Come out from among them. Be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. 
This is the call upon our lives now, of course, in Christ. And I will receive you. The living God of all the ages has received you, Christian. The living God promises to receive you. Verse 16 reminds us that it is God's very presence that you have. He promises that he will dwell among you, that he will be your God, that you will be a part of his people by faith in Christ. So when sin comes your way, when temptation comes your way, you battle it by resting on the promises of God. Look, I'm being tempted today to do this particular sin, but I'm reminded of the fact that the living God has given me the promise that he will be with me and that he will receive me. So I must cleanse myself. This day I must put away sin. I must seek to obey the living God. Again, not to earn my standing, but because I've already been given it by these promises in Christ. We battle sin by promises. Well, the third promise is verse 18. Look there with me. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The third promise we have in these few verses is God's parental care. God's parental or fatherly care. Notice, we we move from God's presence a little inward to God receiving us. And a little further inward to the fact that God is a father to us. Sons and daughters. The Lord Almighty promises that he will be a father to his people. Now what can sin promise you? Think about this in reverse. Sin comes with promises too, doesn't it? Sin promises to give you certain things. It comes with a foundation of promise. I promise you, you will have fun for a moment but you will be destroyed everlastingly. I promise you that I will cradle you in my arms for a moment, and then I will kill you with my venom. I promise you that you will enjoy me for a few moments, and then you will die. I promise you that you need a little bit of me, and then more of me, and then more of me, because I never satisfy. These are the promises of sin. Now hold these promises of sin up next to the promises of God and ask yourself, if I'm going to engage in one option or the other this day, living for sin or living for the living God, and I'm going to base it on promises, whose promises do you believe? Whose promises do you want? We battle sin By the promises of God. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Growing in holiness. How? By a reverence and an awe and a fear of the living God. 
Now, if we were to take these few verses in our text this evening and consider in the week ahead how we might use them to battle sin, perhaps there are other ways, many other numbers that we could use to structure this passage. But we've seen at least two. In this week ahead, as we consider who we are in Christ, we need to battle sin by considering, are we unequally yoked or are we being tempted to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Are we tempted to connect ourselves to them in a way that will drive us towards sin? Some of us. Question may be, am I tempted to connect or yoke myself with an unbeliever that will tend for my life to drive me towards sin? And secondly, in just the week ahead, as I consider who I am in Christ and my own battle with sin, I ought to consider battling sin by the promises of God, namely God's presence, the fact that God receives me. And the fact that God says he will care for me as a father to a son or daughter. Battling sin in both our connections and battling sin by the very promises of God. We ought to consider these things each and every day. Christ has made us his own. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. He made us his own, put his spirit within us, gave us circumcised hearts, united us to himself, fit us for heaven, clothed us in his righteousness, given us promise upon promise. We ought to remember who we are day by day. We are Christ's. Our Lord gives us promises. His promises are the best. Therefore, in this moment, in this temptation, I will rely on King Jesus and his precious promises to me and not the fleeting promises of deceptive sin. And this very week, I will consider, as I'm walking among the lost of this world, not whether I should tell them about Jesus. Yes. should. Not whether I can recognize their human dignity and the fact that they are image bearers of the living God. Absolutely, I should. I want to be careful that I'm not yoking myself with lawlessness, darkness, sons and daughters of Satan, unbelievers and idols. I'm not yoking myself together with those who are unbelievers. We are called to battle sin. Christ has absolutely won the war. But until he comes, there is remaining sin. And we must take up battle weapons. And we do it, at least in this particular passage, by considering our connections and considering the promises of the living God. Let's pray. Almighty God, help your people. This week, when we're tempted. This week, when remaining sin crops up its ugly head. When the voice of the enemy whispers seemingly sweet promises of fulfillment in sin, help us to remember the promises of you, Lord God. 
Help us to remember that your words and promises are true and precious. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to battle sin well in the week ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.